welcome back to the No Walls podcast. This is a podcast about all things human rights and refugee law, including the people working within it and the clients we represent. Welcome back to the No Walls podcast, season two, episode two. For those of you who haven't listened to season two, episode one, it was about the legacy of Priti Patel and Suella Braverman, who, well, was her successor and is her successor. It's been a strange fortnight <laughs> since the last episode came out because uh, she, she had to leave her post and, and six days later she's come back. I'm here with my co-host, Tafika. Same, Tafika, how are you? No, I've been better. I th- I'm glad we didn't do a special episode on rejoicing about Braverman either being sacked or resigning because of her security breaches and how that was such a good thing for the rule of law and general governments because she's back. I was I was so tempted to pitch that, so tempted to pitch that to you. But honestly, it would have taken us longer to edit the episode than it took her to get her job back, man. It wouldn't have even been out yet. Exactly. Not here to talk about personnel in government. This episode is about favourite judgments and what we think makes a good judgment. We have three powerhouse guests on here. We have Chris Butler Casey from Matrix Chambers. We have Alex Goodman of Landmark. And we have Camilla Zapata-Besso of Doughty Street Chambers. Um, not, we're not going to take up too much of your time because they have such great interviews. We want to we want to be able to give you enough time to digest what they're what they're going to be throwing at you. But T, very briefly, what what is it that you look out for in judgment? What what makes a memorable judgment for you? I guess yeah, a few things. One, probably just the way it's written. I think there are big differences in how judges, when they actually draft and write a judgment depending on who they are. They, some, some are just beautifully written. Some are very clear and to the point, And some are very difficult to understand, even if you are some of the brightest lawyers in the world. Um, they'll all say, yeah, that, that's a very complicated and long judgment to read. I think for me, the ones that really, really interest you and grab your attention from the start and make it quite clear for, let's say, the layperson to to really grapple with, even though maybe the law is is, the, is is difficult, breaking it down in that way, I think, really helps. And I think in the work that we do, having judgments, not just the actual way it's written, but what the outcome is, ultimately. What what does it mean? Does it actually benefit a group of people? Does it, will it ultimately just benefit the claimant who brought the challenge or not? Does it change the law in a way which makes it worse? And I think our guests go through some judgments which highlight some of the more important aspects of our work. So I think it's really I think it's really an interesting episode and it's also a bit different, right? Because we cover topics that go beyond the law in many ways. That's what we want to do, I guess. That's what we do, right? How it affects our clients, but also just generally way in which we as lawyers are affected by things that happen to us. But this episode is actually very legally legal based and um it's very much specifically on case law, which I think is different and interesting. Yeah, I remember when we were talking about starting this podcast, that we knew that there were quite a few legal podcasts out there. So we didn't want to keep it strictly confined to the law. But given given the impact that our our cases can have and the impact that the cases of these barristers can have, it's definitely important to at least retain some focus on the law. And look, all three of these guests are three brilliant minds. So they're probably going to give you a more profound answer than I am. But Long story short, my favourite judgments are the ones that really go in on the Home Office. You get you get the odd judgment where you might get a declaration saying the Secretary of State had acted unlawfully, 
but you do get certain judgments where the judges absolutely go in on that department. So yeah, let's not take up any more time. Let's go straight to the interviews. And yeah, I hope everyone enjoys it. Over to our first guest. So I am super excited to introduce Alex Goodman of Landmark Chambers. Alex's practice comprises of public law, including immigration and human rights, planning, environment, local government and civil claim for damages. He's a leading barrister in these fields. Chambers and partners say he's a superb advocate who is incredibly impressive on his feet. And for what it's worth, I thoroughly agree. Alex has been involved in some of the really important cases over the years. But today we want to talk about a particular case, which is called Kambadzi versus the Secretary of State for the Home Department at the High Court. The hearing took place on the 18th of January 2008 and the judgment followed swiftly the week after. Now, of course, Kambadzi eventually went up to the Supreme Court along with another case called Lumba, and they are seminal cases on unlawful detention, and Alex was involved throughout. But today our focus is on that cold January day on the Strand in the High Court where this case started off. Alex, how are you doing? You all right? Very well. Thanks for having me on, Topeak. That's okay. I'm glad you wanted to talk about Kambadzi in the High Court because um, it's obviously something special to both of us. But tell, tell, tell us why you want to talk about that case. Well, I thought seeing as you're in discussion with me, this would be the best case to choose because it was our first case. And um, somehow, out of the blue, some instructions from you turned up on my desk in November 2007. And it was just the sort of instruction that I'd been wanting since I qualified. Um, So, I mean, just to give you the background on that, I I did a pupillage uh, finishing in 2004 at Landmark Chambers, didn't get taken on. Uh, Went on to Francis Taylor Buildings, did another pupillage mainly on village green law and planning. Game didn't get taken on and then was left to try and build my own practice a bit. And what I'd always wanted to do anyway was human rights and immigration work. So I started trying to build my own practice up around that. And I was involved with a lot of political organisations, medical justice, and started to build my practices around some of that work and with bail for immigration detainees. Uh, And then I'd started a project around trying to get people out of detention, not just through bail, but through judicial review and habeas corpus work. But I'd never been in the High Court uh, on my own, um, apart from as a pupil. So um, in a way, it was quite a surprise in November um, 2007, uh, really at the very outset of my career to suddenly be instructed on what seemed like quite a significant judicial review. As in, for the record, I didn't know that at the time. Um, I had actually joined the firm um, back then at Lawrence Lupin uh, for a few months, I think. And I, and I got given this another case that we, you were working on with my supervisor at the time. And I read those pleadings and I thought, oh, you, you're, you're you know, really good. Oh. seems good. So I thought in this case, let's bring you in. Uh, I didn't realise that you were pretty inexperienced at the time. Yeah, um, yeah. You know. So, yeah, I mean, Kambadzi was my first case in the High Court and it was also my first case in the Court of Appeal and my first case in the Supreme Court. So um, it was a pretty lucky break uh, in terms of, you know, building up my experience. Um, well, thank you very much for trusting in me, uh, Tafik. Um, uh, I'm glad you didn't know that uh, I was quite as uh, green as I was. Well, it's a lesson, I, I guess, for us all as solicitors, you know, I guess these days you think if it's a really important point, potentially you immediately generally and you're now one of those leading barristers, right? You you normally go to you and maybe that that, that very young, inexperienced, but super bright counsel is looked over. So 
maybe if people listen to this will take note of that. Well, maybe. I mean, I think I was, we'll come on to the detail of the case. I think I was pretty lucky that it turned into a significant case, but um, I certainly did a lot more work than I would ever do now. I mean, I you know I started from absolute scratch and read every single thing I could find on false imprisonment and um, you know read around it as far as I possibly could because it you know it was the biggest thing I'd done at the time. So you certainly got a lot more work out of me on that front. <laughs> so. You're instructed. Our client is still in detention. You're looking through the papers. So tell tell me what tell me give us a little bit of the background of the case before we move on to to that actual day in court and the judgment. Yeah. So Mr. Kambadzi was a Zimbabwean national, and at the time, uh, I'd been involved in lots of asylum appeal work and bail immigration uh, for immigration bail cases for Zimbabwean nationals because it was a a period when Mugabe was being particularly oppressive towards opposition or perceived opposition members. And there'd been a lot of litigation around the ability to deport almost anybody. In fact, Medical Justice, which I helped set up and was chair of, was formed as a result of protests by Zimbabwean nationals going on hunger strike. Some extraordinary people who went on hunger strike 20, even up to 30 days in detention to bring an end to the deportations to Zimbabwe and medical justice built up around supporting that both legally and with the doctors who were quite shocked by how little knowledge or understanding there was of the of the implications of hunger strike. Um, so I knew a fair amount about Zimbabwe cases so that I was comfortable with that element of it. Um, and it and it seemed to me there was a good point on the usual Hardy or Singh type approach that it was very unlikely Mr. Kambati was going to be deported at any time soon. So that seemed the obvious routine. And so we got a bail application sort of straight off the ground. We did a you know an urgent application, N463, got in front of uh, Mr. Justice Sullivan early December, maybe 4th of December. And then he refused bail, but said, but the only reason I'm doing that is to hold over to a substantive hearing and, and listed that for mid-January. So that was a good result from that hearing. Um, and as a result of that, we then got disclosure, such as it was. The judge subsequently was very critical of the nature of the disclosure. But what we did get showed that Mr. Kambadzi had been in detention for a very long time, over two years. And that in that period, the Secretary of State hadn't reviewed the detention at all. In fact, um, for the first 10 months, there hadn't been a single review. And the reviews were required by both the detention centre rules and the policy to be taken every month. Uh, and for 10 months, they did nothing. Uh, and then in the subsequent months, they were sporadic, they were occasional. So that's the picture that suddenly emerged when we got the full file, which we didn't have when we initially initially pleaded the case. And then we're, we're listed for a, effectively a, an urgent but full hearing yeah. before Mr. Justice Mumby, as he then was. So tell me about that day. Yeah, so as usual, the day before the hearing, you get the name of your judge and I immediately set about finding out as much as I could about Mr Justice Mundy because the role of an advocate is to persuade the judge and so you want to know what the judge is like, what he's thinking. And um, so I looked up as many of, I, uh, of his judgments as I could. I, I, I Honestly, I, I mean, obviously he's a very well-known judge now, but I didn't know much about him at the time. I was sharing a room at the time. I was at 45 Grays in Square with Chris Butler and he had just recently done a case in front of Mr Justice Mundy and he uh, sent me that, so I read that, and in that case, uh, he'd Mr. Smumby had referred to the Anifrajeva case, which is the 
case that many of you will will know is a case where Lord Steyn refers to the need for decisions affecting people's legal rights to be notified to them. And that obviously fed in quite closely to the points that we were dealing with about the failure to review Cambadzi. And so I thought, oh, great, that's, you know, that's brilliant that he's just done a judgment picking up on that point. So I made sure that I reread that and was armed with that. So that was my sort of overnight preparation once I knew that um, I'd got Mr. Justice Mumby. And then what was another interesting feature was I got a call very early in the morning from my opponent, uh, who was Martin Chamberlain, now Mr. Justice Chamberlain. And he said, I think I've uh, found a case that helps you. So Miss Justice Chamberlain has always been an officer of the court and make, and makes very sure to uh, you know bring all authorities against his own client to your attention. Uh, I was very impressed by that, but slightly suspicious that that might be something of a double-edged um, suggestion, as indeed it did turn out to be. But he'd found this case called Roberts in the Court of Appeal, which was against him, certainly in some ways. So he brought that to my attention and um, I, I, I duly read that in the morning before the hearing. So that was the sort of preparation. As far as skeleton argument had got, I was concerned, I, I remember I'd spent a very long time on that because I'd been doing all the background reading. Um, so, yeah, I went into court. I think pretty pretty ready as far as these case, these things can be and you know where they're fairly urgent. What I love about this case, and you know, I've said this a few times to different people when we talk about it, was and that's when I also realised how junior you were. And it was such a sweet moment because it was um the judge in the court, obviously, you, Martin Chamberlain as the impotent. I don't I don't remember home office officials being there. There may have been um Treasury solicitors there, I can't remember. It was me. And then there was your mum. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and Mr. Cambadzi, let's, let's remember. And, and Mr. of course, Mr. Cambadzi had uh, so, been brought along. Yeah, my mum came along because it was my first made, you know, substantive hearing. I, I, you know, I think I'd done the bail application in this case, but not much else. Um, uh, so my mum had been wanting to come along and see me in court. And this was the best opportunity so far. So there she was sitting at the back. Yeah, well, she must have been very proud. I mean, obviously, since then, You've done God knows how many court hearings, but that was yeah, that was the first main high court one, right? So sure, she was excited. Yeah, no, that was great that she came, you know, um, and uh, you know she's got Alzheimer's disease now, so she won't be coming again, or she certainly won't follow it if she does. But um, she uh, she really enjoyed it, and she was actually quite useful because she tapped me on the shoulder at the end or towards the end, I think, when there was a spare moment, and said, um, "You should go and talk to." your client because um she said he's been bobbing around trying to catch your eye throughout the whole of the time he's been here because what what happened was miss justice mumby again being a very proper and honorable judge had decided this was an important case and in the great tradition of english habeas corpus the body should be brought before the court and very right he was to do that um and i wish all judges took the same view that when someone's liberty is at stake they should at least be brought before the court to inspect them and make sure they've not been maltreated and, and make sure that they have their rights vindicated in open court. So he followed that that great tradition, ensured he was there, uh, and he was in this sort of caged dock and desperate to talk to me. So I did go up and, and have a good word with him and he shook my hand and said thank you and all that sort of thing. So that was actually a really important moment, I think, because uh, I didn't otherwise get an opportunity to to meet with him. And often, as counsel, you you you're preparing cases on a totally um, you know paper based understanding in in judicial review without necessarily having a chance to to meet particularly detained clients. 
you know, and I've actually worked with him for many years since on, on, on various matters. So, uh, and, and met with him again many times. Um, and, you know, and, and it does help very much as counsel to put the jovial, jolly, kindly, soft-hearted character of the person in perspective. Because when you read the judgment, he's, he's put down as a, a not a very nice man, a serious offender and so on. And, and, it, and it doesn't bear any resemblance to the client in person when you meet him. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree definitely with that. And so you knew it was going well, the court hearing was going well in, in the way in which Mr Justice Mumby gave those indications. And you know as an advocate, is that right, that generally when your submissions are resonating and you're, 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 you're doing well, I mean, how, how does that feel when, when you know a case is going well for you in court? Yeah, I think unless, as a claimant, which I generally am, I'm not exclusively, but I usually am for claimants, that unless you feel as though the judge is definitely with you, then you're going to lose because the odds are tilted against you. Um, you know, I always say <clears throat> my general f- sort of motto is that uh, if you can lose, you will lose as a claimant. Uh, you know, if there's a decent defence that can be put up, of you know, a credible defence, then then the defendant's probably got it in the bag. But I mean, you know, yes, Mr Justice Mumby was outraged throughout on many fronts as the facts became more clear to him as we went through them. Uh, yeah, Mar- Martin Chamberlain did have, I think, one person from GLD, fairly junior, sitting behind him because I remember that she kept having to run off to try and get instructions on things, which obviously was impossible on the afternoon of a, of a hearing with with the Home Office as your client. But um, uh, he, I remember that they they were desperately attempting, and, and and also you know right up through the draft judgment process up to the end, there there were dribs and drabs of, of of further disclosure coming in and questions being answered and attempts to make up for the sort of terrible uh, show they'd put on. So yeah, I think it, I, it felt like it was it was going pretty well, and and that moment I mentioned about preparing the Anufrajeva case that landed very well. So uh, as I got onto the argument that failing to review the detention rendered the detention without authority and therefore a false imprisonment. Uh, Mr Justice Mumby asked, he said, isn't there that Lord Stain judgment about uh, notice? And he couldn't remember the name of it. And I immediately was able to say, yes, let me take you to paragraph 26 of the Anifrajeva, you know, tab whatever in the bundle, (laughs) and uh, was able to take him to the paragraph. And that that feeling of being able to connect with the judge's mind is is always gratifying because then you sort of get you, you sort of hope that you've got his confidence that you're speaking the same language so that's you know something i've always tried to carry through when as an advocate is to try and engage with the judge's mind and read into their thinking as much as possible and speak their language you know and it, even to use their phraseology in your submissions as a kind of unconscious cue that you're speaking their their language quite literally you know so I I can remember I used to do a whole load of fresh claim cases um at, just after this in the years following fresh claim JRs and Miss Justice Collins just used this phrase in one of his cases of how the new piece of evidence changed the complexion of the case and I'd always say that to him <laughs> I'd always land with him because the judge doesn't remember that you're literally quoting them but it just makes them <laughs> feel that oh yes that's how I would have put it you know so, um, so, yeah. very good and then the judgment comes along very um, as I mentioned earlier pretty soon after and we'll talk about the judgment now because really it still stands 
And I know I've made the point that this case then goes on, right, and goes to the Court of Appeal and then eventually to the Supreme Court. But this judgment is just beautiful, isn't it? It really is. The way it's written, just talk talk us through about that. Yeah, the, the language in it is is really exemplary. And it's, uh, you know, Miss Justice Mumby writes very well, but it's, a, it's an example of some of his best work. His clerk actually told me that he'd had enough of them meaning the home department. And so he went to town doing some of his best work on this. And um, this, uh, you know, th- there's beautiful language throughout it. And, and what's interesting about it is that he got overturned in the Court of Appeal in an absolutely terrible and almost meaningless judgment, and then restored in the Supreme Court. And really, what he said is the essence of the Supreme Court judgment. So the question was, if you don't review somebody's detention, but if you had reviewed them, they'd have stayed in detention anyway. What, what are the consequences for the, um, uh, you know, in terms of the, the legal position uh, uh, for that as a false imprisonment? Uh, so I'll just give you the kind of ratio of the cases, paragraph 68, and I'll read that out if, if that's all right to speak. It says, integral to the scheme endorsed by Parliament in its approval of Rule 9 of the Detention Centre rules, that's a rule that requires monthly reviews of detention, and integral to the policy laid down by the Secretary of State in paragraph 38.8 of the Operations Enforcement Manual, is the principle that someone is not to be detained beyond a certain period without there being a review undertaken at regular intervals, and moreover, as required by the Secretary of State's policy, a review undertaken at increasingly high levels of seniority within the Home Office as the period of detention grows longer. Those reviews are fundamental to the propriety of the continuing detention, They are required in order to ensure that the continuing detention can still be justified in the light of current and perhaps changed circumstances. And they are, in my judgment, a necessary prerequisite to the continuing legality of the detention. So, again, as I said, that's essentially what Lord Carr, Lady Hale, Lord Hope said in the Supreme Court in reversing the Court of Appeal and upholding Mr Justice Mumby's judgment. So in a very succinct way, he summarised the point in the case. But the other feature, I think, that, that stands out in the judgment is the way in which he, he rises to this eloquence, this kind of, ling- this, dic- this extraordinary diction that he has when, when furious. You know, so it begins with Mr Alex Goodman moves for the discharge from custody of SK. He asserts on behalf of the prisoner, that he has been unlawfully detained by the Secretary of State for the best part of 22 months. I agree, indeed, he has been unlawfully detained for substantial periods. And then he says in paragraph two, I must return to this in due course, but I have to say that the melancholy facts that have been exposed as a result of these proceedings are both shocking and scandalous. You know, it's got a sort of Dickensian timbre to it. Absolutely. (laughs) There's some great other passages in paragraph four. SK will will evoke sympathy in few hearts, but everyone is protected by the law, by the rule of law. It matters not what a person has done. Outlawry has long been abolished. So, yeah, (laughs) outlawry is such a good word and and summarises so much of what the Home Department um, (laughs) involves itself with. Uh, And he he goes on then to quote from the great Kawaja judgment. Every person within the jurisdiction enjoys the equal protection of our laws. There's no distinction between British nationals and others. He is subject to English law, is entitled to its protection. This principle has been in the law at least since Lord Mansfield freed the black in Somerset's case. And so in the first few paragraphs, he's got Kawaja, and then he goes on in paragraph six. Uh, and so and then he cites Somerset's case. That's the great case of uh, fr- freeing a slave in 1772. And then in paragraph uh, five, he cites Liversidge and Anderson, 
in English law, every imprisonment is prima facie unlawful and it's for the person directing imprisonment to justify his, his act. That's the great case in the, in the, during the Second World War where Lord Atkin dissented from the other four judges and stood up for the right of liberty. Uh, and then in paragraph six, he manages to cite Entick and Carrington, which is the um, uh, 1765 case, uh, which established the principle that the Secretary of State is subject to the common law. So he gets you know, a whole history of English law in the first six paragraphs. It's the sort of thing you might find in a government review of the Human Rights Act. Um, it's all the, you know, all the great English common law traditions are, uh, are stuffed in there before getting on to paragraph seven, um, seven where he starts to get onto the convention, European convention. So, you know, it's a great kind of grandiose opening to a, to a judgment that he obviously took a lot of pleasure in writing. Yeah, absolutely. And you were, as I said earlier, involved in the case, not as the, obviously as the advocate at the High Court, and then as it goes up to the Court of Appeal and then the Supreme Court, we instruct a leader to do the advocacy. I've always found that that side of it interesting when, you know, you've been, you know, as a junior, really critical, uh, either in winning the case in, in, in the lower court, but just being involved. In, but then you no longer do the advocacy as it moves up. How, how did that feel? I mean, obviously, you knew how important and how big the case was. So, so but, but did you feel a sense of like, you know, you'd done so well at the high court? Um, how did you feel the advocacy was not for you in, in the hearings going up? I can't remember. I think because it was so early on, I, I didn't feel any expectation or entitlement to take on the advocacy. Of, you know, Obviously, now I work as a junior sometimes and I, I very much enjoy the advocacy part of it. And I think that's probably my better bit than doing the, the, the pleadings. So I prefer to, to do it that way around if I can. But I think at the time, I, I mean, I was much too junior to feel any kind of sense that I should be appearing before the Court of Appeal, let alone the Supreme Court. So, you know, and because it was obviously a significant judgment and it was the Secretary of State's appeal, so um, that made life easier in a sense. We were able to get uh, Andrew Nicholl in the Court of Appeal. He had to drop out because he, he went to the bench. Um, and then we got Raza Hussein was the up-and-coming leading junior in immigration to to take it on in the, in the Supreme Court. So, uh, you know, it was a great opportunity to work with those two, as I said, in in what was in both cases my first outing into those. Andrew Nichols had to drop out just after we got judgment, I think it was, in the Court of Appeal. So we got judgment in the Court of Appeal July that year, and then presumably he was going off the bench very shortly after. So I actually did the Supreme Court petition myself. So I was pleased with that because we didn't have a, a replacement at the time and the you know, it was in the summer and the, the 28 days or whatever you've got kind of ticked away. So Yeah, so. it was actually um, at that time, it was the House of Lords. It, if you it was, although I think it converted by the time we got and into it. Converted, yeah. but, and obviously by the time it, it was listed or we got permission, it was uh, obviously the Supreme Court came about. Yeah. yeah. I think it, it was one of the first cases to be heard in the Supreme Court, or, you know, f- or at least... Uh, one of definitely the first in relation to detention and immigration detention. Yeah, it was. was it? Not sure if it was the first, but certainly one of the first. I think that one about the alphabet soup was uh, was might have been the first. But anyway, it was it was certainly within the first few months of the Supreme Court that it, it was heard. Yeah, yeah. I remember you. I took your brilliantly drafted permission physically to the House of Lords to oh, right. issue it. <laughs> I <was very> excited. <laughs> And since then, you know, that was actually 14 years ago, that hearing, right? And obviously, we're a lot older. I'm not particularly sure if we're any wiser. But you're still representing people in immigration detention. 
Yeah. In fact, right now, you're one of the main barristers in the ongoing Brookhouse inquiry that's set up to investigate ill treatment of detainees in detention. How, how, how do you feel about that? You know, you were you know, a young barrister back in t- 2008, uncovering what was clearly unlawful activity by the state. And yet 14 years on, it's kind of like this, not much has changed. Well, uh, I mean, I think I take a lot of comfort in the idea that actually the process is really important, that by holding them to account as far as you can do, uh, they, you know, they are an organisation steeped in outlawry, as as Mr Justice Mumby said, or in fact, as he as he says in his paragraph two, that the melancholy facts of the case are shocking even to those who still live in the shadow of the damning admission by a former Secretary of State, that a great department of state, the Home Department, is unfit for purpose. They are scandalous for what they expose as the seeming inability of that department to comply not merely with the law, but with the very rule of law itself. And it's true to say that since these events, which go back to 2006, we are still in a situation where the Home Department is unfit for purpose. It still fails to comply with the law and with the rule of law itself, as our work and that of many others has exposed repeatedly. And I think I take comfort in the fact that by exposing it, we are at least upholding our end of the rule of law barking, which is to ensure that these matters are brought into light and exposed and corrected insofar as we as as lawyers can do. So um, that is a great privilege to be in a country and in a time where arbitrary conduct can be brought to to heal in that way. Um, you know, and we really mustn't ever take that for granted. I, I'm doing a lot of work at the moment around uh, Myanmar, uh, you know, and that's a country where rule of law has never in the last 60 years had a had a place at the table and it's such a valuable idea and such a valuable process to have available to us that even though yes it is true that we have not made many substantive gains in terms of improving the way in which the home office as a department behaves we may well have have stanched a lot of the way it might have gone if we hadn't done our job so I think that's that's probably the way to keep to keep the faith and keep um, the energy going on these on these quite difficult and you know many cases uh, tiring and um, despairing kind of issues. Yeah, you mentioned to be the Brook House case, um, just yeah. the latest really of us working together. You know, I'm hugely grateful to have worked with you essentially continuously. I mean, I think you had a couple of years where you went to New York and I had a couple of years where I was um, out of practice. But uh, I think even in those periods, we had such long running cases that they were ticking along in the background and we we started them up again once we were back. So essentially, we've worked continuously, which is a great privilege in a in a career. And, you know, there's only one or two other people I've, I've really had that with, but that's been such a great feature. And, and to be doing the Brook House case now, it's such an interesting and different way of analysing a lot of the problems that go on in immigration detention. It's such a culmination of a lot of the work that you and your firm and your team have done uh, and that I've tried to contribute to in in bringing to light a lot of the abuse. And, and it's, you know, it's really exposing things that I'd never seen before when 
I thought I'd seen such a wide variety of of uh, misconduct by the Home Office and, and G4S in um, in detention centres. So, um, you know, that's that's been a really good latest chapter in our work together. Yeah, and um, you know, the reason why I think we've worked together for so long is because you have always consistently been brilliant and. You know, as a instructing solicitor, always generally goes back to people who churn out excellent top level work, but is also able to kind of take on a lot. You know, that's sadly the reality of kind of you know immigration, public law, legal aid stuff. We've got to do a lot very quickly, and I guess Cambadzi is a really good example of that because that case was issued as you as you said in I think November, and it was listed in January, and all of that work that you did. To, to get to the point where you know we got that judgment was done in 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 a really kind of expedited way. Yeah, and you've been doing that for a number of years, so I thank you. Yeah, I mean that that is a it's a pressured environment in some ways, and uh, I mean that case is is an interesting example of that because we got the disclosure only a few weeks before the hearing. One of the things that I just want to touch on about the Cambadzi case was the disclosure issues in it. Because um, what we got was just the usual what's now fairly standard, the subject access requests kind of bundle. But uh, we got no witness statement from the Secretary of State. And Mr Justice Mumby was um, quite critical of that. He says, it's a significant and in my judgment, a very disturbing feature of this case that the Secretary of State has not seen fit to file any evidence at all in answer to the serious allegations being made by and on behalf of SK. Following the hearing before Sullivan Jay, whose order had pre- provided that the Secretary of State was to serve detailed grounds of defence, evidence and disclosure by the 20th of December 2007, the Secretary of State contented herself with serving, in addition to her detailed grounds of defence, a bundle running to 522 pages, being, as I understand, a copy of the relevant Home Office file. That bundle raised as many questions, very serious questions indeed, I might add, as it answered. It reveals the shameful extent of the failure of duty and defence of the law by the Secretary of State's officials. But the Secretary of State has not condescended to give any evidence explaining what has happened. So we went in front of Mr Justice Mumby, having had this bundle which revealed that nobody nobody had reviewed the detention of um, Mr Cambadzi in the first 10 months while he was uh, initially at Lincoln Prison. And thereafter had only bothered to do I think he found a total of three valid reviews in the entire 24-26 months before it came in front of him and what then came out in the Lumber case subsequently was of course that there was a secret policy of detaining all foreign national prisoners at the expiry of their prison sentence on a blanket basis meaning effectively without exception And so the real reason that was not disclosed that Mr. Gambadzi had not had his detention reviewed was that it was utterly pointless to review it because the outcome was a foregone conclusion that no one was going to be released. Now, the Secretary of State was engaged in this entirely unlawful practice, as the Supreme Court found in Lumber. But what we found out through the disclosure in Lumber, and after I think we'd even been in the Supreme Court on on Gambadzi, was that the Secretary of State not only had kept it all secret, they'd held meetings about this policy where no notes were taken, that's what we were told in their evidence in Lumber, but they had decided, they had chosen which cases strategically they wanted to let this, this policy come out in the courts because they got to a point where they realised that lawyers were probing too often. There were too many questions being asked about this secret policy of not releasing people. They knew it was going to come out 
And so they developed a strategy of choosing the most obnoxious individuals cases in which to release it. And in fact, Lumber at the permission hearing was the one they chose because Lumber had a serious conviction, four-year sentence, seemed like a good case for them. In fact, Lumber got adjourned. But once the cat was out of the bag, they had to start disclosing it in other cases. And it got disclosed in some fairly benign individuals' cases. But they managed to steer it so that Lumber and Mighty became the lead cases on that. So they'd actually strategized to quite an alarming degree how to mislead the court. And Kambadzi, clearly, they knew there was a secret policy. uh, And we now know the context of them not putting in a witness statement was that they had to say what was going on if they did. So um, that explains a whole element of the case that wasn't apparent to us at any of the uh, levels, because although Lumber came along, the full extent of the nefarious conduct by the Home Office was not apparent at Court of Appeal or indeed the Supreme Court, because most of the disclosure in Lumber and Mighty was just before Supreme Court level. So furious as Mr Justice Mumby was with the state of the evidence in front of him, if he'd actually been given a true picture, one can only imagine what measures uh, he might have been driven to take. I think it's also interesting, and you know, before people start pointing fingers and calling us lefty lawyers, uh, that this case was uh, in two, 2008. And when Mr, Mr Justice Mumby described the inability of the Home Secretary to comply with the law and, in fact, with the very rule of law. It was a Labour Home Secretary. Uh, and and it's important for us to remember that the various challenges over the years haven't been necessarily directed at a specific political party. That's true. Um, and that, I think, speaks to the independence of the Home Office from the elected government. I, I heard an interview with David Blunkett, who said that he'd arrived at the Home Office and had p- proposed some form of policy or action and was told that's not Home Office policy. Uh, and, and it is run somehow as an institution that is independent of the elected representatives and is run and driven by an agenda that has remained consistent. Really since, I think, the scandal around the foreign national prisoners, because that, you know, that that led to the resignation of the then Home Secretary, and I think hit very hard upon them. Uh, so in relation to foreign national prisoners, that policy really has remained unchanged since and has found its way now into various forms of legislation. But the basic thrust of it has remained fairly similar. And that's a kind of disturbing kind of notion that actually who we elect doesn't really seem to affect the way in which this one institution operates. And I think it really is something that needs to be addressed when a government that has the authority necessary to to, to look into the way in which this department functions is, is, is elected, because, you know, that's not how democracy is supposed to operate. Uh, and it does seem, it seems to be, a, seems to be somehow independently operating and it's unclear by whom you know I've never understood or got to the bottom of how it is that uh, this department continues and operates and who's in charge of it given that it seems to to be somewhat unaffected by changes um, at, at ministerial level. Well Alex thank you this has been really fascinating I know that I guess understandably Kambadzi and Lumba in the Supreme Court will always steal its thunder but Kambadzi in the High Court with you Mr. Chamberlain and Mr. Justice Mumby uh, will actually just stand alone as an absolute brilliant judgment. 
And thanks today for talking to us about it. Maybe another podcast we can talk to you about Village Green Law. But I think today we've run out of time. Thank you very much for instructing me on the case, Tafik, and for reminiscing today. So today we are speaking with Chris Butler KC. He is a barrister at Matrix Chambers. Chris practices in all areas of public and human rights law and is ranked as a leading silk in those fields. Chambers and Partners 2022, I'm sure 2023 says really good things as well, but 2022 says he's exceptional. His presentation is clear and excellent. He is head and shoulders above everyone else. Drafting is impeccable, ferocious in court, and always turns cases around with his advocacy. And if I can say... Personally, I endorse all of those comments. Chris, you are one of the best. So hopefully today will be an interesting conversation. We're really pleased that you've agreed to be on our podcast because you've always got some interesting stuff to say. And today we want to focus on interesting and important cases that you've come across in your time and how that's affected your practice or in in, in many ways how, how it's affected affected your clients. So what were you thinking? What, what, what are you th- what are you planning today? Uh, I'm going to say something about a case that relates to access to justice, um, by which I mean the ability of individuals to, to get help from lawyers like us, and if they have a case, to get it decided by a judge. And, and the case I've chosen um, is a well-known case of Unison, heard by the decided by the Supreme Court. And the, the, the facts of the case are quite far removed from the sort of cases that you and I have done together, but the issues raised resonate. The facts of the case concerns an employment tribunal fees order, which required fees to be paid by applicants before they could commence an employment tribunal claim. So it was an exercise of government power designed to shift the costs burden from the general taxpayer to tribunal users. Um, and one of the interesting things about the case is if you, you contrast it to other recent cases of the Supreme Court, in other spheres, uh, the recent trends of Lord Reed's Supreme Court has been to afford the executive a wide latitude in the socio-economic judgments that the executive reaches. Uh, but an interesting feature of the Unison case was that in relation to access to justice, Lord Reed, giving the judgment of the Supreme Court, held that the executive has far less freedom of action. Uh, and it held that the right of access to justice could only be curtailed uh, with the authority of Parliament through clear and express words. What was also significant about the case was the Supreme Court's willingness to reach its own factual assessment of whether the level of fees that resulted from the fees order would, in fact, prevent access to justice. And the Supreme Court's conclusion was that it found that the fees order did prevent access to justice for at least some people And since that wasn't expressly authorised by primary legislation, that was ultra virus. Um, So it's it's worth it's worth I think in particular there's a passage of Lord Reed's judgment which is just fantastic and deserves reading and rereading, and that's paragraph 66 to 85 on the on the constitutional right of access to the court. Um, And I mean before we 
embark on perhaps a, a, a broader discussion, um, Tafik. I thought, if, if you wouldn't mind, I was just going to read one tiny passage from the from the judgment, um, which I think makes encapsulates the point. Paragraph 66, Lord Reed begins by saying the constitutional right of access to the courts is inherent in the rule of law. And then he goes on at uh, paragraph 68, and he says this, he says, courts exist in order to ensure that the laws made by parliament and the common law created by the courts themselves are implied and are applied and enforced. That role includes ensuring that the executive branch of government carries out its functions in accordance with the law. In order for the courts to perform that role, people must in principle have unimpeded access to them. Without such access, laws are liable to become a dead letter. The work done by Parliament may be rendered nugatory, and the democratic election of members of Parliament may become a meaningless charade. That's why the courts don't merely provide a public service like any other. Access to the courts isn't therefore value only to the particular individuals involved. And part of my reasons for choosing this case is I think it's really important that the government and the and the tabloids should think about that before they brand lawyers doing the kind of work that we've done together as activists um, and criticise us for doing our job. Yeah, I think that's, I think it's important, as you say. And what's interesting is how you've used that in a number of our cases where we've seen from our side so when we're obviously taking instructions from clients we're hearing about things that happen on the ground to clients so whether they are unable to access lawyers whether they are unable to benefit from legal advice because of restrictive legal aid rules for example um, or whether they're stuck in detention unable to instruct lawyers to stop them from being deported or from getting uh, released you've used this these high principles that as you said as you said at the beginning may not ne- have necessarily applied to sort of immigration asylum work but turned turned those high principles into actual cases so t- sort of tell me about tell me about your thinking and, and and maybe give some examples about those sort of cases that use unison in that way yeah, I mean, there are three, I think, maybe four cases that you and I have done together, which rely on these high principles. Um, I mean, the first of those, and perhaps the, the one that Duncan Lewis, as a firm, deserved great credit for, is the case that you brought in, your, in the firm's own name against the Lord Chancellor, challenging what was the legal aid agency and the Lord Chancellor's view, that it wasn't possible to backdate a grant of legal aid to the date on which the application was made. And that caused serious problems for individuals who needed very urgent legal advice and legal action to be taken. And sort of the classic example is the client who's in immigration detention going to be removed very soon, instructs Duncan Lewis or a firm like Duncan Lewis at the last minute and needs legal advice and needs to know whether they've got grounds to challenge their removal. And if they, if the advisors, yes, you have got grounds to challenge, can then get into court and can apply for an injunction against removal. And in that, in that sort of situation, as I understand, you all know better than me, but a very um, urgent application for legal aid needs to be made so that the lawyers can get paid. You know, we don't provide a charitable service. And then the, the legal aid agency will need to make a decision on the application and decide whether or not to grant legal aid. But inevitably, it, it will take 
a number of days for the legal aid agency to make its decision. And if legal aid were only available from the date of the grant of legal aid, from the date on which the decision is made, then it'd be too late for the individual. And so, as I recall it, Duncan Lewis said to the legal aid agency, well, look, you need to be able to backdate legal aid to the date of our application so that um, if, if we back a case, if we think it's got sufficient merit and it turns out that you agree, if it turns out that the legal aid criteria are satisfied, you need to be able to backdate so we can get paid for the urgent work that we've done. Uh, as you may recall, the, the, the legal aid agency and the Lord Chancellor said, no, that's impossible. And so Duncan Lewis brought a claim for judicial review. I think after the grant of permission by the um, administrative court, the uh, Lord Chancellor backed down and then amended the legal aid regulations to make express provision for backdating. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That, and, and I remember at the time, and it's always, it's always difficult, isn't it, when firms who, where they are predominantly legally aided bring challenges against the legal aid agency. I, I know, as you recall, we were obviously fairly cautious and concerned about that, but ultimately it was the right thing to do and acknowledged by the LAA because they, um, they, they ended up changing their the way forward the way in which they applied it and that was I think that was massive because it's not one of those cases you know it didn't make the headlines it's not particularly uh, of interest to anyone other than delayed lawyers who do emergency work and sadly there, there aren't that many of those knocking about but it was as you say so important for that person that individual who's about to be removed or needed urgent help with their accommodation, you know, they're about to be destitute or they're, they're in detention when they shouldn't be. And it was, unsu- it was unsustainable doing work at risk where you knew, not even at risk, you knew you wouldn't be able to recover the work. You wouldn't be able to instruct very busy and very able barristers because they were not going to get paid for that critical urgent work and so it was it was a it was a real issue and and as a result of that case i think we managed to bring in a process which now at least allows us as you say to backdate it so even though it's there is a there is a bit of working at risk we can at least know that we're sure of our merits we the, the la will grant the funding to the point where we applied so yeah absolutely that is access to justice working in its truest form isn't it yeah and i I think just to to relate it back to what lord reed said in unison it isn't only about the interests of those individuals and their ability to to vindicate their own rights it's more fundamental than that i mean the point lord reed's making is that it's it's part and parcel of the rule of law and 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 the rule of law is and, and the ability to have recourse to courts and the ability to have recourse to lawyers in order to be able to get to court it is an essential part of our democracy now, this isn't a particularly popular client group with the government or with the government's tabloid cheerleaders, but I don't think that undermines the principle that this is, you know, it's a fundamental part of our, of our democratic system. And on that, we, we did talk, and I hope you want to talk about a couple of other cases where, again, the client group wasn't necessarily a popular client group and may have led to sort of adverse uh, publicity by those sections of the media. But again, so important for access to justice. So maybe talk to me first about the detention action case in relation to phones, because I think that was um, that was important. Yeah, that was that, that was an interesting case. So as I, as I remember it, we represented 
a number of individuals who were due to be removed on a charter flight to Jamaica. And the problem which they faced was that there was a removal window. So they had something like five working days notice of their removal. And that, that removal notice window was important and was recognised by the government to be there so that individuals could get legal advice. And if it turned out that they had good grounds, good legal grounds to challenge their removal, they'd be able to bring their case to court within that notice period. And within that period, every day counted. It's quite difficult to get a case into court so quickly. And the problem that they faced was that one of the principal means by which they were able to speak to lawyers and get legal advice was by mobile phone. Um, that's the way it worked from the immigration removal centres in which they were detained. Uh, and the problem they faced is that the um, mobile phones that they'd been given had um, O2 um, chips and the O2 mast um, in the vicinity of the Heathrow Immigration Removal Centres went down, which meant that they were no longer able to telephone their lawyers um, and therefore suffered a severe impediment in respect of their access to lawyers and therefore their access to the courts uh, within, that, um, within that window. And so we brought fairly last minute injunction application seeking to stay the removal of those individuals who only had O2 phones um, because they hadn't been able to avail themselves of the, the removal window and hadn't been able to access lawyers effectively. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And um, we were not backed, weren't we? We were, we were not backed at the High Court initially. We then went to the Court of Appeal, again on an emergency basis. The, the evening, the flight was supposed to be, I think, early hours the next day. Um, so we went and renewed the injunction to the Court of Appeal. Tell me about that evening, that you know, because again, going back to Lord Reed High Principles, but then you're dealing with on an injunctive basis, fast-paced, basically through the day and then into the night, having to draft and respond to the government's position. Do you remember that? Do you remember that that evening? That yeah, I mean, it's. it's... It's a, it's, it's a fairly hairy process, isn't it? I mean, you must have the same thoughts. One only brings a case of this kind if one thinks it has sufficient legal merit. I mean, you know, contrary to popular belief, we can't get legal aid unless we think we're going to win. Um, and therefore, we should have a high win rate. And, but when one's knocked back by the high court and one's in the position of having to trouble a court of appeal judge in the evening, potentially keep them up, and stop them going for, for going to bed. You've got to be pretty confident <laughs> in your grounds, and inevitably, one questions one's own judgment and thinks, "Look, have I have I actually got, you know have I got this wrong? Am I am I am I confident that the legal arguments are sufficiently sound to bother a court of appeal judge with this?" But I think we we formed the view that we did, and as it turned out, I think it was Lady Justice Simler uh, agreed. Um, she then she ordered she, she she granted the order on the papers and then I, as I as I recall it the the government silk then applied for that decision to be set aside and so we had another round of submissions very late into the evening and I I may have got the, the timings wrong but as I recall it it was something like midnight or one o'clock in the morning that we got the final order from the court of appeal knocking back the secretary of state. That's right. Pe people had been taken from the detention centres to the airport. I mean, some were waiting in their vans that 
to be put on the plane and then we got the order around I think midnight or 1am the final order that, that is and they were directed to take those people who had been affected off the plane or driven back to the IRCs so that it was as last minute as you could get and it all came down to as you say this idea of access to justice it's, it, was, it was such a brilliant example of that the courts taking that seriously because these were you know this was highly politicized the pressure obviously was on the courts because it was um very public because it was a jamaican deport charter flight you know massive pressure and yet they you know they didn't buckle it was because you presented it in a way which was very clear cut yeah i mean it wasn't about the merits of the individual's um claims to remain in the uk i mean it may have turned out that None of the individuals had good grounds to remain in the UK, but what they were entitled to was access to legal advice to decide whether or not they did. And the importance of being able to bring a claim to the court's attention, if they had good grounds to bring a claim, was so important that it, 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 they couldn't be removed before they'd had that that opportunity. Yeah, I think there was a there was a return there was a return hearing, wasn't there? And. Um... You, you know, as many times, Chris, you were on fire that day at the the court. And I think you were enjoying yourself because we had already got the order. So uh, I want to quote back some of the things you said. I I assume they're accurate because they were reported in the press of you saying them. But you said any government worth its salt appreciates that judicial review is a cornerstone of our constitution. And disappointment when results go against you does not justify an attack on the constitution or threats to dismantle it. And, you know, that was back in 2020. I think those words are pretty relevant now as we move on to the next phase of, of this government, don't you think? Yeah, I can't, I can't believe you dug that, that quote out. Um, yeah, I had a bit of fun that day because, as you say, we, um, we'd already resolved the case in our favour. But no, I think it's absolutely right. I mean, personally, I know that at the bar people take different views of this. I mean, I, I object to being branded an activist lawyer. Because what I do is I, I represent individuals to the best of my ability. And we've got two overriding duties. One, our duty to the court of candour and not to mislead. And then secondly, our duty to fight as hard as we can for our clients and try and win the case for them. And that's it. And, you know, that perform, that then does perform a wider function indirectly of hopefully ensuring compliance with the rule of law but as, as in that quote you just read out you know the, it's, it, it, it's understandable that the government doesn't like it when it loses obviously but it's absolutely wrong in principle to attack the lawyers and the judges who argue and determine cases not least because as lord reed indicated they're performing this vital public function of maintaining the rule of law and giving effect to our constitutional principles. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to throw another quote back at you. This is uh, in the same hearing where you say, this is about the ancient constitutional right of access to justice. And secondly, it has been the duty of the English courts to uphold the right of access to justice since at least the Magna Carta of 1215. That is their function. To contend that this is a dysfunctional system is a betrayal of our most fundamental constitutional values yeah the reason i said that do you remember the reason i said that was because dominic cummings who was still pulling the levers of government at that point had had, had argued that it was it was it had been unconstitutional or abuse of power in some way for us to have brought that case absolutely i think it was right that 
someone like you who is well respected and as you say isn't branded as a or, or rejects being branded as a, some sort of activist lawyer said that in open court in a really cold sober but very powerful way because I think it reminded everyone what those values were and, and remain. Yeah, it was quite a heightened political atmosphere at that point, wasn't it? That I think that was the case in which um, the Home Secretary, Pretty Patel at the time, was reported to have shouted at civil servants so much that the, the head of the department or whoever it was and went off on sick leave. And so there were there was there was quite a lot of fallout, I think, within the department and then Dominic Cummings briefing the media and then the attitude of the, the of the right wing tabloid press. That's right. It was all kicking off that evening. And what what summed you up as a just a cold, stone cold assassin of a barrister was <laughs> after you got the brilliant order in the High Court about one AM, the rest of us were sort of high fiving and, you know, detention action our client were furiously strategizing as to deploy it you simply said right well i've got a got a long day tomorrow so i'm uh, i'm off to bed <laughs> <laughs> um finally on on a couple of cases that we kind of deployed unison on in in that kind of genre was the prison case sm yeah uh, which was, I think, a brilliant case which you were uh, instructed on. Tell, tell us about SM and how that relates back to um, the case you, you, you've been talking about today. Yeah, and that was, that was a discrimination case concerning differential opportunities to access lawyers and therefore access the court for those immigration detainees who are detained in prisons compared to immigration detainees detained in immigration removal centres. Because those in immigration removal centres again, you'll know much better than me, every individual has a right to a 30-minute appointment with a legally aided lawyer um, who will listen to their account and advise them on whether they've got grounds to apply for bail to get released from detention and whether they've got a right to challenge their removal from the UK. So that's what immigration detainees in immigration removal centres get. And the problem was that immigration detainees can be detained in either immigration removal centres or they can be detained in prison. And that might simply be because the immigration removal centres are full, so they get put in the prison instead. And those individuals don't get a, or at the time, didn't get a 30-minute appointment with a legally aided lawyer, and therefore didn't have the same opportunity for legal advice um, and getting to court. And it was a particular problem because the um, immigration detainee population in prisons were dispersed around the country and it was expensive for lawyers to travel to far-flung prisons and um, give advice, which meant that in practice those individuals had, had great difficulty in obtaining legal advice. So we, we brought a discrimination claim. We framed it under Article 14 of the ECHR, read with, I think we must have done it, read with Article five and with article six i think we may have also said and also with article three because it was the ability to advance an asylum claim and pretty obvious how, how the how the case was run we we said we were within the ambit of those convention rights we were treated uh, we were in an analogous situation to immigration detainees uh, detained in immigration removal centers and we were treated less favorably on the ground of our status which we characterized as being an immigration detainee in a prison. And therefore, the burden fell to the Lord Chancellor to justify the difference in treatments, and, and he was unable to do so. Um, so the, so the, the High Court agreed that, um, 
the, the difference in treatment constituted a breach of Article 14. Yeah, and it was a, it was a really important outcome and, and almost part of a, a longer battle in getting better access to those in prison, especially those in prison under immigration powers, because that battle continues. But this was um, a, real, a real building block and, a, and in quite a significant one. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I don't think the, the problem has been resolved. I mean, the, the the lack of access to a thirty-minute appointment was really the tip of an iceberg, but it was the it was the easiest thing to challenge in that case. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, that's brilliant, Chris. And I think maybe my f- sort of final thoughts and be interesting to hear from you. So, Unison was in the uh, decided by the UK Supreme Court in twenty seventeen. And we're nearly six years or so, five, six years from that. Um, and we've got so many issues in relation to access to justice moving forward. Do you think Unison would would apply now? Um, would the courts apply it in the same way as they did back in 2017? Uh, that's a good question. I'm not convinced that Unison would be decided in the same way had it been heard for the first time now, because the members membership of the Supreme Court has changed so considerably since then. I mean, just looking at the judgment which I've got in front of me, the judgment was given by Lord Reid, obviously now the president, but along uh, those agreeing with him included uh, Newberger, Kerr and Wilson. So it was a rather, had a rather different makeup. And I do wonder, given the changes that we've seen over the last few years in terms of the direction of travel of the judgments of the Supreme Court, whether the case would now be decided in the same way. But that said, I think that it would be very difficult now for any court to depart from the principles which Unison identifies in the context of access to justice. I think that access to justice rights are now sufficiently well entrenched. But, of course, we've seen um, in a whole load of other spheres, a whole load of other areas of public law, um, the Supreme Court has taken a somewhat different approach to past Supreme Courts and has afforded the executive far, far wider latitudes than previous Supreme Courts have. Um, I mean, obviously, in the, you know, in, in public law, whatever right one's talking about, whether it's a, you know, a, a common law right and one's dealing with a rationality review or one's dealing with, you know, legitimate expectations, something like that, or when one's dealing with um, qualified convention rights or positive obligations under in respect of absolute convention rights. So much depends on the degree of latitude that one gives to the executive. I mean, the, the court's answer is liable to change depending on whether it adopts an intrusive approach or says, well, look, this is fundamentally a socioeconomic political judgment in respect of which it should you know, be left to the executive to decide. Well, look, it's a difficult time, but as long as we have people like you using those high principles in real world situations where our clients are affected, then maybe we still have a chance. So <laughs> I would like to thank you, Chris. Uh, I know you're a busy man. It's been really interesting to talk to you today and um, hopefully we'll see your cases um, appear in the future and you continue to progress this area of law. Thanks, Tafik. Always a pleasure to speak to you. All right. Thank you. And with me today, I have Camilla Zapata-Besso, a barrister that I work with quite frequently. Camilla, how are you? I'm well, Shory, thank you. 
Good, good. I didn't tell you I was going to do this, but I'm going to embarrass you now. Camilla in Chambers and Partners for the UK Bar 2023. I'm, I'm looking at this right now. Ranked as up and coming in immigration. But have you read? Have you read the comments about your strengths? Have you done? Have you read this yet? Stop it, Shari. This is really. I, I can recognise one of them because I wrote them. <laughs> but I'm gonna. I'll go through. I'll go through two of them. Very hardworking yeah. and sharp. She's become go-to junior. True. True. I can vouch for that. And she has excellent strategic skills. She works with exceptional speed and efficiency. No lies there. No lies there. Camilla, why don't you tell the listeners a bit about the work that you do in your practice? Because not everyone who's listening will know about that. So, Sharoi, as you know, I'm regularly instructed to appear in the FGT, the First Year Tribunal, Immigration Asylum Chamber, and the other tribunals in complex asylum and human rights and protection appeals. Um, most of my clients, not all of them, but most of them are vulnerable adults and children. I have particular experience in working with victims of torture, sexual violence, victims of human trafficking, um, as well as unaccompanied minors and individuals with mental health needs, which touches on uh, or perhaps explains the case I'm going to be uh, talking to you about today. Yeah, that's a, that's a decent segue, actually. I was thinking that everything that you just said, it makes perfect sense, uh, that the case that you're about to deal with. Why don't you tell the listeners... What, what, what the case is about in terms of the facts anyway, and we can perhaps get into the principles and why you think that it's, that it's an important judgment, if not one of your favourite ones. So, so the reason I've picked this case, and it's AM Afghanistan in the Court of Appeal in 2017, is, is I wanted to keep this simple. And so I've picked a judgment that asylum law practitioners like myself apply day in, day out in the tribunals. Uh, and the case which I think has really made a, a practical difference for, for appellants in this jurisdiction. It, it was a case effectively where it, it was held that it, that it had been an error of law for a first year tribunal judge and then the upper tribunal to effectively ignore a psychological report that had raised relevant diagnoses and advised on special measures required for an appellant to give best evidence. But but it's the guidance given in that judgment, which is which is important to lawyers in this jurisdiction. And I, sh- I just want to start by saying that b- because of the nature of our clients, we have to have, as you well know, Shroy, a trauma-informed practice, working with victims of, of, of such, some of the most horrendous uh, experiences that, that one can fathom. You're dealing with people for whom going through the tribunals, being in front of the courts, giving evidence, preparing an appeal is in and of itself re-traumatising. Individuals for whom giving evidence or even the mere fact of sitting in front of a judge, in front of a tribunal is much more difficult than, than it would be for somebody who hasn't been through the kinds of traumatic experiences that they have been through. Now, the starting point in AM Afghanistan was that there were there was already a raft of guidance in the tribunals as regards how to deal with sensitive witnesses. So there was a joint presidential guidance note of 2010 and the practice direction on child vulnerable adult and sensitive witnesses. And that applies to uh, vulnerable sensitive witnesses defined as witnesses whose evidence is likely to be diminished by reason of distress in connection with giving evidence. When you're dealing with these cases at case prep stage, diagnosis going to vulnerabilities may be evident to solicitors when looking through a client's medical records. But, you know, in respect of clients who've recently arrived in the UK, who may be so vulnerable that they that they don't trust authorities and therefore haven't had the opportunity to or been willing to go to their GPs to, to seek mental health assistance, it may well be that indicators that a client is suffering from mental health issues arise when a statement has been taken from them, for example, or in one of their home office interviews. In either case, obtaining expert psychiatric or psychological evidence 
will be crucial to addressing specific issues arising in the appeal. One of them will be what your client's state of mental health is, what their treatment, care or support needs are, the, the assessment of the likely impact of their return to their home country. And those those questions all go to the issues in the appeal of why, why can't a person go back? Any suicidal self-harm risk as well. But, and this is what AM Afghanistan really touches on, whether client can safely give evidence on certain issues, i.e. without irrevocable damage to their mental health, and or what special measures can be implemented to ensure that they give best evidence. And that can include guidance from a psychiatric expert as to who should be in the room, frequency of breaks, how questions should be put, and the extent to which the judge should control or decide areas for questioning. Now, as I say in AM Afghanistan, there, there was already a psychological report of this type before the first tier tribunal. And effectively what had happened was that that it had been ignored. And that it, I think it was in agreement between the Secretary of State and the appellant in that case before the Court of Appeal that that had plainly been an error of law. But the Court of Appeal, made up of Sir Ernest Ryder, who was then Senior President of Tribunals, and Lord Justices Gross and Underhill, gave guidance on the general approach to be adopted in law and practice by the First Year Tribunal as to the fair determination of claims for asylum from vulnerable persons whose ability, as I say, to effectively participate in proceedings may be limited. The, the court noted that the failure to follow the joint presidential guidance will most likely be a material error of law. It reiterated important principles that expert and medical evidence must be part of the holistic credibility assessment and can be critical in explaining whether and why an individual may have difficulties in providing evidence or providing a cogent account uh, and held that solely focusing on personal credibility of the appellant's account and not having regard to objective evidence testifying to the appellant's vulnerability would lead to proceedings neither being fair nor just. It also highlighted that in cases involving vulnerable appellants, there should be an, enha an enhanced focus on objective indicators of, of risk and corroboration from, for example, a country expert report, rather than a sole focus on personal credibility. Um, in that case, the, the first year tribunal had failed to direct itself or take into account the country report, which provided evidence that supported, was capable of supporting the appellant's accounts of past events and identified objective indicators of risk on, on return. Now, you know, as I say these things, I recall that since that judgment, my experience is it's now quite rare to see first year tribunal judges make the kinds of errors that were before the Court of Appeal in AM Afghanistan. I mean, the joint presidential guidance notes and the guidance in AM Afghanistan, as I say, are cited day in, day out in the tribunals. They're applied quite uniformly. But there is still a real value to what is said in AM Afghanistan, especially in respect of the case prep stage. So in AM Afghanistan, the Court of Appeal also mentioned that the early identification of issues of vulnerability is encouraged, if at all possible, before any substantive hearing, and that where any incapacitated, and I'll turn to capacity in a moment, or vulnerable person does give oral evidence, detailed provision is to be made to ensure that their welfare is protected before and during the hearing. And this important statement of principle goes to the timing at which uh, identification of particular issues should be done. It's a principle now often cited by solicitors and correspondents and counsel at the case management stage to say to the tribunal, look, there is an indicator that, that, that our client is vulnerable that needs to be dealt with before the substantive hearing, comprehensively dealt with. Therefore, we should, see, we should be granted further time to explore and obtain medical evidence in respect of 
a client's mental health issues. The Court of Appeal also gave crucial guidance, which remains crucial as regards the appointment of, of, of litigation friends in the tribunal for those for children or those otherwise lacking capacity. It, it was the case uh, before the Court of Appeal, and it's still the case that the first tier tribunal and upper tribunal procedure rules don't explicitly regulate the power or procedure for uh, appointing a litigation friend in the tribunal. Lord Justice Underhill remarked that this was very unsatisfactory and hoped that the Tribunal Procedure Committee would make provision for it urgently. But in any event, Senior President Ryder stated that there was ample flexibility in the tribunal rules as they stood and as they stand to permit the tribunal to appoint a litigation friend in the rare circumstances where that is necessary. But in the alternative, even if the tribunal rules don't confer that power, the overriding objective in the context of natural justice requires the same conclusion to be reached. Now, since AM Afghanistan, the upper tribunal has dealt with and provided guidance in, in respect of the appointment of litigation friends in the context of immigration judicial reviews in the upper tribunal in a case called JS and others, litigation friend child of 2019. Some of the guidance therein is relevant statutory appeals, um, but it remains that, that, that AM Afghanistan is the most important statement of principle as regards the ability of the first tier tribunal to appoint a litigation friend. I mean, thinking about, I probably started in 2013. So that's that's four years where all of these base level errors hadn't even been acknowledged at court of appeal stage. And God only knows how many tribunal determinations have been handed down in, in the preceding period where all of these errors persisted, right? So what what sort of changes have you have you seen I know it talked about detailed provision at hearing level. What sort of changes have you seen at the hearing in terms of how judges might treat individuals to ensure that they are treated as vulnerable witnesses? And what what, what adjustments have you had to make on your feet as a barrister uh, to, to deal with the to deal with the impact of that judgment? Well, I mean, look, I started in two thousand and seventeen, so I, I would I mean maybe one of the reasons I cite this case as one of my favourites is that it was sort of groundbreaking in the sense that it was the first time the Court of Appeal had pronounced itself on on issues specific to vulnerable witness in statutory appeals in the first tier and upper tribunal. But it it was also judgment that was that was handed down when I started my work in immigration tribunals, and so it's a, it's affected my entire practice. But but as I've already said, my feeling is that since that judgment. You really don't see, I mean, it's very rare to see the kinds of errors that the Court of Appeal looked at in that judgment happening today. They may well happen in a particular case, but it's much more rare. So the protections of the joint presidential guidance notes, the importance of following experts, psychiatrists or psychologists' advice as regards special measures that should be imposed are quite uniformly applied by the tribunals, which is a very good thing. Because it means that when you're preparing an appellant for the prospect of, of, of a hearing in your pre-hearing conference, etc., you can now advise them with some certainty that, that that is the procedure that the tribunal should follow. And from your experience, is one that they will follow. That said, that there has since been further guidance from the upper tribunal. What, what I think the upper tribunal may have seen is an over-reliance from appellants to counsel on AM Afghanistan in, in appealing FTT decisions to the upper tribunal. One of those cases is SB Vulnerable Adult Credibility Ghana of 2019. In short, in that case, the the upper tribunal held or gave guidance to the effect that just because a first tier tribunal judge decides in light of medical evidence to treat an appellant as vulnerable, 
that doesn't mean that the first tier tribunal uh, cannot make any adverse credibility findings against that individual. All that adverse credibility findings are inherently problematic uh, and therefore that any adverse credibility findings are inherently open to challenge on appeal just because the person was vulnerable. That, that is a point that it's still entirely consistent with what is said by the Court of Appeal in AM Afghanistan. It's, it's, it's pretty much a statement of the obvious, but, but an important statement nonetheless, I think, because, because what AM Afghanistan says is you, if you put in place these special measures and you properly take into account um, what is said by the psychiatric expert, how that may be relevant to credibility, and if that is taken into account as part of a holistic credibility assessment, then first a tribunal judge won't be infecting the judgment with an error of law. But if, if that procedure is in place, if that holistic credibility assessment is undertaken correctly, there is nothing stopping a first tier tribunal judge from still making adverse credibility findings that is still open to the first tier tribunal judge. Another case which uh, asylum protection lawyers are dealing with quite, quite often now in the tribunals is HA, expert evidence mental health, 2022, um, where the upper tribunal gave guidance on what is expected of medical experts um, in appeals. And, you know, even the the fact that this guidance is proliferated in the upper tribunal, perhaps is a signifier of the extent to which cases in the first year tribunal protection cases consistently raise vulnerability issues and medical expert evidence. But uh, anyway, the, the upper tribunal underlined in that case that experts are expected to comply with their obligations to the tribunal, that they're expected to consider the individual's full medical records in order to address whether those are consistent with or paint a picture different to the one provided in an individual's uh, assessment appointment with an expert. But as I say again, this is really just guidance which clarifies or or provides an important sort of gloss to the core principles restated in AIM Afghanistan. But those core principles at the heart of that judgment still apply. And in terms of case preparation, if you, I mean, and you act, you act as counsel in a number of these cases, it's, it's of course, we know with our client base that pretty much everyone that we serve has, has some sort of historic trauma and is vulnerable to some extent, right? Um, but as you say, that, that isn't something that simply bars the tribunal from, from making any adverse credibility findings. So in terms of case preparation for you, what would you, a bit of advice to solicitors that instruct you or caseworkers that instruct you, what would be the best mechanisms and the best steps to make sure are in place from the outset of the case to ensure that if your client is going to is going to have difficulty with credibility because of their vulnerability, what would you what would you want those solicitors and caseworkers to do to, to adequately prepare you for any application that you need to make? Well, I think you know it it really depends at the, what stage it is that you're making this application. So, say say for example, you're making an application quite late for an adjournment. Which, which is a situation that solicitors should always want to avoid. It may be that it's because it's just bec- it's just come to the solicitor's attention that the person is vulnerable, um, and and you know that can happen for a number of reasons. One that comes to mind off the top of my head is a situation where an applicant may well be so ashamed by the idea of mental health issues for cultural reasons that they have effectively not disclosed it to their solicitors until 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 pressed or until that uh, until they've been advised as regards the, the the importance of being candid about any of those issues before the substantive hearing goes ahead. So so those issues may well come up quite late in conference with solicitors. And then you may be in a situation where 
it's not possible to get the relevant and medical expert evidence in time for a listed substantive hearing date. So an adjournment application needs to be made and that adjournment application needs to be made with reference to principles of fairness. Um, in those circumstances, a clear explanation from solicitors as regards, you know, what is the reason for this late disclosure? Can, a, can, it, can, can the late disclosure be explained by way of a witness statement from the client or from the, from the solicitor? What experts have been contacted as soon as that late disclosure was made? What is that? What is their timescales? Will all help counsel make um, a success, as, as, as meritorious an adjournment application as possible? Um, and then the next question is, what questions do you put to an expert? And I'd say, in addition to the the, the raft of, of guidance to experts in the first tier tribunal, which solicitors will be aware, well aware of, do have regard to um, the guidance in HA expert evidence for 2022 because it is being raised by the Secretary of State in all appeals where medical evidence is relied on. If the appellant has ever been to the GP, um, and, and you know it may well be that the GP records go back years, um, you will have been expected to obtain the GP records and to provide them to an expert. Where an expert comes to a, a, a diagnosis uh, or, or, or makes opinions, um, without sight of the GP records, um, that will be a basis on which, I, and I say this from experience, the Secretary of State will attempt to impugn the reliability of the experts' findings. That said, if you have a client who's never been to the GP, um, then you can't provide those medical records for obvious reasons. Similarly, you may have a client who, as I say, for, for reasons attached to, to shame, cultural reasons, or maybe reasons themselves bound up in their mental health issues may just never have explained or raised with their GP that they're suffering from mental health issues. Um, if that is the case, an expert will have to deal with that explanation. So it should be brought to the expert's attention that that is, that that is the, the, the appellant's reasoning or explanation for why their GP records don't deal with any mental health issues. And the other thing I would say is, is, is questions to, to experts have to be you know, they have to be detailed. They have to, you have to ensure that whatever the expert comes out, comes back with is going to fully deal with the, with the issues before the tribunal. One, one thing that often comes up is this, is that, you know, you may have a client who has, who has a long and complex trauma history, right? And, and say that an aspect of that trauma history includes a particularly, uh, an event or an incident which is particularly traumatic in the context of a trauma history made up of several traumatic events, but there's one uh, incident which they which they find particularly difficult to talk about, and an expert can deal with that. And incidents which come to mind are incidents of torture, sexual violence and rape, child sex abuse. Very difficult for, for a parent to talk about it. It may be that the Secretary of State um, contest credibility in respect of one of those incidents. It may be that the incident is, is sort of ancillary to the whole claim. But in any event, an expert will need to be looking at whether or not the person can safely give evidence on that issue. And this is relevant per the Joint Presidential Guidance Note. And the expert will have to be dealing with, well, if a client gives evidence on this on this particular issue, is that going to have a a, a, an irrevocable detrimental effect on their mental health in the short and the long term. Um, and the, the guidance states that 
where, where, that, where that is the case, that the person shouldn't have to give evidence on the issue. Any findings from experts in that regard have to be very clear and unequivocal. Um, they can't be confused with, with, with the guidance given by experts to the effect of that this person can safely give evidence if X, Y, Z special med- measures are imposed. So I've had expert reports before where an expert may say both things. They may say the, the, the person can't give evidence in respect of this discrete issue, but these special measures should be imposed. One suggests that the person can't safely give evidence on an issue, but the other suggests that they can if special measures are imposed. What you need, uh, and where I've gone back to experts for clarification on, and the, where the tribunal is very grateful for the kind of precision on, is in what, in respect of what issues can the person give evidence without special measures? In respect of what issues are special measures required? It may well be that in respect of all issues, special measures are required. And are there any particular issues in respect of which, even if special measures were imposed, giving evidence would be so distressing that it outweighs the, the benefit of, of evidence being given to the tribunal? And an ex- expert really should be dealing with those things in in clear and certain terms. Camilla, insightful and thorough as ever. I'm sure that was helpful, not just for people who don't necessarily understand how vulnerable people are at tribunal level and what difficulties they have, but also people who are preparing these appeals or, or litigants in person who just needed a bit of understanding as to, as to what steps they can take to ensure that their their credibility isn't hammered through things that are beyond their control, ultimately. So thank you so much for your time. Is there anything else that you'd like to say to our listeners before you go and get on with uh, at least two cases that I know you're working on? I don't know how many others you're working on at the same time. Nothing to add, sure. <laughs> Happy to get as right, I've, <laughs> I've taken up enough of your time. Thank you so much for jumping on, Camilla. We'll speak soon. Pleasure. All right, take care.